Chapter Twenty Five, Part One of the Ragged Trousered Philanthropists. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyke Hines. The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists, by Robert Tressel. Chapter Twenty Five, Part One. The Oblong. During the following week the work at the cave progressed rapidly towards completion, although the hours of daylight being so few the men worked only from 8 a.m. till 4 p.m., and they had their breakfasts before they came. This made forty hours a week, so that those who were paid sevenpence an hour earned one pound three and fourpence. Those who got sixpence halfpenny drew one pound one and eightpence. Those whose wages were fivepence an hour were paid the princely sum of sixteen shillings eight pence for the week's hard labour, and those whose rate was fourpence halfpenny picked up fifteen shillings. And yet there are people who have the insolence to say that drink is the cause of poverty, and many of the persons who say this spend more than that on drink themselves every day of their useless lives. By Tuesday night all the inside was finished, with the exception of the kitchen and scullery. The painting of the kitchen had been delayed owing to the non-arrival of the new cooking range, and the scullery was still used as the paint shop. The outside work was also nearly finished. All the first coating was done, and the second coating was being proceeded with. According to the specification, all the outside woodwork was supposed to have three coats, and the guttering, rain-pipes, and other ironwork two coats, but Crass and Hunter had arranged to make two coats do for most of the windows and woodwork, and all the ironwork was to be made do with one coat only. The windows were painted in two colours, the sashes dark green and the frames white. All the rest, gables, doors, railings, guttering, etc., was dark green, and all the dark green paint was made with boiled linseed oil and varnish, no turpentine being allowed to be used on this part of the work. "'This is some bloody fine stuff to have to use, ain't it?' remarked Harlow to Philpot on Wednesday morning. "'It's more like a lot of treacle than anything else.' "'Yes, and I won't half blister next summer when it gets a bit of sun on it,' replied Philpot with a grin. "'I suppose they're afraid that if they was to put a little torps in, it wouldn't bear out, and then they'd have to give it another coat.' "'You can bet your life that's the reason,' said Philpot. "'But all the same, I mean to pinch a drop to put in mine as soon as Crass is gone. From where? Why, don't you know? There's another funeral on today. Didn't you see that coffin plate that Owen was writing in the drawing room last Saturday morning? No, I wasn't there. Don't you remember I was sent away to do a ceiling and a bit of painting over at Windley? Oh, of course I forgot, exclaimed Philpot. I reckon Crass and Slime must be making a small fortune out of all these funerals said Harlow. This makes the fourth in the last fortnight. What is it they gets for them? A shilling for taking home the coffin and lifting in the corpse, and four bob for the funeral. Five bob altogether. That's a bit of all right, ain't it? said Harlow. A couple of them in a week besides your week's wages, eh? Five bob for two or three hours' work? Yeah, the money's all right, mate, but they're welcome to do it for my part. I don't want to go messing about with no corpses replied Philpot with a shudder. "'Who's this last party what's dead?' asked Harlow after a pause. "'It's a parson what used to belong to the Shining Light Chapel. He'd been abroad on his holidays to Monte Carlo. It seems he was ill before he went away, but the change did him a lot of good. In fact, he was quite recovered, and he was coming back again. 
but while he was standing on the platform at Monte Carlo station waiting for the train, a porter runned into him with a barrel load of luggage, and he blowed up. Blowed up? Yes, repeated Philpot. Blowed up, busted, exploded, all into pieces. But they swept them all up and put them in a coffin, and it's to be planted this afternoon. Harlow maintained an awe-struck silence, and Philpot continued. I had a drink the other night with a butcher bloke, what used to serve this parson with meat, and we was talking about what a strange sort of death it was, but he said he wasn't at all surprised to hear it. The only thing as he wondered at was that the man didn't blow up long ago, considering the amount of grub he used to make away with. He says the quantities of stuff as he took there, and seen other tradesmen take, was something chronic. Tons of it. What was the parson's name? asked Harlow. Belcher. You must have noticed him about the town. A very fat chap, replied Philpot. I'm sorry I wasn't here on Sunday to see the coffin plate. Frank called me in to see the warden when he'd finished it. It had on Joni Dab Belcher, born January 1st, 1849, ascended December 8th, 19-something. Oh, I know the bloke now, cried Harlow. I remember my youngsters bringing home a subscription list what they'd got up at the Sunday school to send him away for an holiday because he was ill, and I gave him a penny each to put on their cards because I didn't want them to feel mean before the other young uns. Nah, it's the same party. Two or three young uns asked me to give something to put on at the same time, and I see they've got another subscription list on now. I met one of new men's children yesterday, and she showed it to me. It's for an entertainment and a Christmas tree for all the children what goes to the Sunday school, so I don't mind giving just a trifle for anything like that. It seems to be getting colder, don't it? It's enough to freeze the ears off a brass monkey, remarked Easton, as he descended from a ladder close by, and, placing his pot on the ground, began to try to warm his hands by rubbing and beating them together. He was trembling, and his teeth were chattering with cold. I could just do with a nice pint of beer now, he said as he stamped his feet on the ground. That's just what I was thinking, said Philpot wistfully. And what's more, I mean to have one too, at dinner time. I shall nip down to the cricketers. Even if I don't get back till a few minutes after one, it won't matter, because Cross and Nimrod'll be gone to the funeral. Will you bring me back a pint with you, in a bottle? asked Easton. Yes, certainly, said Philpot. Harlow said nothing. He also would have liked a pint of beer, but, as was usual with him, he had not the necessary cash. Having restored the circulation to a certain extent, they now resumed their work, and only just in time, for a few minutes afterwards they observed Misery peeping round the corner of the house at them, and they wondered how long he had been there, and whether he had overheard their conversation. At twelve o'clock Crass and Slime cleared off in a great hurry and a little while afterwards Philpot took off his apron and put on his coat to go to the cricketers. When the others found out where he was going, several of them asked him to bring back a drink for them, and then someone suggested that all those who wanted some beer should give twopence each. This was done. One shilling and fourpence was collected and given to Philpot, who was to bring back a gallon of beer in a jar. He promised to get back as soon as ever he could, and some of the shareholders decided not to drink any tea with their dinners but to wait for the beer, although they knew that it would be nearly time to resume work before he could get back. It would be a quarter to one at the very earliest. The minutes dragged slowly by, and after a while the only man on the job who had a watch 
began to lose his temper and refused to answer any more inquiries concerning the time. So presently Bert was sent up to the top of the house to look at the church clock which was visible therefrom, and when he came down he reported that it was ten minutes to one. Symptoms of anxiety now began to manifest themselves amongst the shareholders, several of whom went down to the main road to see if Philpot was yet in sight, but each returned with the same report. They could see nothing of him. No one was formally in charge of the job during Crass's absence, but they all returned to their work promptly at one because they feared that Sawkins, or some other sneak, might report any irregularity to Crass or Misery. At a quarter past one, Philpot was still missing, and the uneasiness of the shareholders began to develop into a panic. Some of them plainly expressed the opinion that he had gone on the razzle with the money. As the time wore on, this became the general opinion. At two o'clock, all hope of his return having been abandoned, two or three of the shareholders went and drank some of the cold tea. Their fears were only too well founded, for they saw no more of Philpot till the next morning, when he arrived looking very sheepish and repentant, and promised to refund all the money on Saturday. He also made a long rambling statement from which it appeared that on his way to the cricketers he met a couple of chaps whom he knew were out of work, and he invited them to come and have a drink. When they got to the pub, they found there the semi-drunk and the besotted wretch. One drink led to another, and then they started arguing and he had forgotten all about the gallon of beer until he woke up this morning. Whilst Philpot was making this explanation, they were putting on their aprons and blouses, and Crass was serving out the lots of colour. Slime took no part in the conversation, but got ready as quickly as possible, and went outside to make a start. The reason for his haste soon became apparent to some of the others, for they noticed that he had selected and commenced painting a large window that was so situated as to be sheltered from the keen wind that was blowing. The basement of the house was slightly below the level of the ground, and there was a sort of trench or area about three feet deep in front of the basement windows. The banks of this trench were covered with rose trees and evergreens, and the bottom was a mass of slimy, evil-smelling, rain-sodden earth foul with the excrement of nocturnal animals. To second-coat these basement windows, Philpot and Harlow had to get down into and stand in all this filth, which soaked through the worn and broken soles of their boots. As they worked, the thorns of the rose-trees caught and tore their clothing and lacerated the flesh of their half-frozen hands. Owen and Easton were working on ladders and doing the windows immediately above Philpot and Harlow. Sawkins, on another ladder, was painting one of the gables, and the other men were working at different parts of the outside of the house. The boy Bert was painting the iron railings of the front fence. The weather was bitterly cold. The sun was concealed by the dreary expanse of grey cloud that covered the wintry sky. As they stood there working, most of the time they were almost perfectly motionless, the only part of their bodies that were exercised being their right arms. The work they were now doing required to be done very carefully and deliberately, otherwise the glass would be messed up, or the white paint of the frames would run into the dark green of the sashes, both colours being wet at the same time, each man having two pots of paint and two sets of brushes. The wind was not blowing in sudden gusts, but swept by in a strong, persistent current that penetrated their clothing and left them trembling and numb with cold. It blew from the right, and it was all the worst on that account, because the right arm, being in use, left that side of the body fully exposed. 
they were able to keep their left hands in their trousers' pockets and their left arm close to the side most of the time. This made a lot of difference. Another reason why it is worse when the wind strikes upon one from the right side is that the buttons on a man's coat are always on the right side, and consequently the wind gets underneath. Philpot realised this all the more because some of the buttons on his coat and waistcoat were missing. As they worked on, trembling with cold, and with their teeth chattering, their faces and hands became that pale violet colour generally seen on the lips of a corpse. Their eyes became full of water, and the lids were red and inflamed. Philpots and Harlow's boots were soon wet through, with the water they absorbed from the damp ground, and their feet were sore and intensely painful with cold. Their hands, of course, suffered the most, becoming so numbed that they were unable to feel the brushes they held. In fact, presently, as Philpot was taking a dip of colour, the brush fell from his hand into the pot, and then, finding that he was unable to move his fingers, he pushed his hand into his trousers' pocket to thaw, and began to walk about, stamping his feet on the ground. His example was quickly followed by Owen, Easton, and Harlow, and they all went round the corner to the sheltered side of the house where Slime was working, and began walking up and down, rubbing their hands, stamping their feet, and swinging their arms to warm themselves. "'If I thought Nimrod wasn't coming, I'd put my overcoat on and work in it,' remarked Philpot. "'But you never knows when to expect a bugger, and if he saw me in it, it would mean the bloody push.' "'It wouldn't interfere with our workin' if we did wear them,' said Easton. "'In fact, we'd be able to work all the quicker if we wasn't so cold.' "'Even if misery didn't come, I suppose Crass would have something to say if we put them on,' continued Philpot. "'Well, you couldn't blame him if he did say something, could you?' said Slime offensively. "'Crass would get into a row himself if Hunter came and saw us workin' in overcoats. It would look ridiculous.' Slime suffered less from the cold than any of them, not only because he had secured the most sheltered window, but also because he was better clothed than most of the rest. "'What's Crass supposed to be doing inside?' asked Easton as he tramped up and down, with his shoulders hunched up and his hands thrust deep into the pockets of his trousers. "'Blowed if I know,' replied Philpot. "'Messing about touching up or making colour. He never does his share of a job like this.' He knows how to work things all right for hisself. Well, what if he does? We'd be the same if we was in his place, and so would anybody else, said Slime, and added sarcastically, or perhaps you'd give all the soft jobs to the other people, and do all the rough yourselves. Slime knew that, although they were speaking of Crass, they were also alluding to himself, and as he replied to Philpot, he looked slyly at Owen, who had so far taken no part in the conversation. "'It's not a question of what we would do,' chimed in Harlow. "'It's a question of what's fair. "'And it's not fair for Crass to pick all the soft jobs for himself "'and leave all the rough ones for others. And "'The fact that we might do the same if we had the chance don't make a right. "'No one can be blamed for doing the best he can for himself "'under existing circumstances,' said Owen in reply to Slime's questioning look. "'That is the principle of the present system. "'Every man for himself and the devil take the rest.' For my own part, I don't pretend to practice unselfishness. I don't pretend to guide my actions by the rules laid down in the Sermon on the Mount. But it's certainly surprising to hear you, who profess to be a follower of Christ, advocating selfishness. Or rather, it would be surprising if it were not that the name of Christian has ceased to signify one who follows Christ, and has come to mean only liar and hypocrite. Slime made no answer. 
Possibly the fact that he was a true believer enabled him to bear this insult with meekness and humility. "'I wonder what time it is,' interposed Philpot. Slime looked at his watch. It was nearly ten o'clock. "'Jesus Christ! Is that all?' growled Easton as they returned to work. Two more hours before dinner!' "'Only two more hours. But to these miserable, half-starved, ill-clad wretches, standing here in the bitter wind that pierced their clothing, and seemed to be tearing at their very hearts and lungs with icy fingers, it appeared like an eternity. To judge by the eagerness with which they longed for dinner-time, one might have thought that they had some glorious banquet to look forward to, instead of bread and cheese, and onions or bloaters, and stewed tea. Two more hours of torture before dinner, and three more hours after that, and then, thank God, it would be too dark to see to work any longer. It would have been much better for them if, instead of being free men, they had been slaves, and the property, instead of hirelings, of Mr. Rushton. As it was, he would not have cared if one or all of them had become ill or died from the effects of exposure. It would have made no difference to him. There were plenty of others out of work, and on the verge of starvation, who would be very glad to take their places. But if they had been Rushton's property, such work as this would have been deferred until it could be done without danger to the health and lives of the slaves, or at any rate, even if it were proceeded with during such weather, their owner would have seen to it that they were properly clothed and fed. He would have taken as much care of them as he would of his horse. People always take great care of their horses. If they were to overwork a horse and make it ill, it would cost something for medicine and the veterinary surgeon, to say nothing of the animal's board and lodging. If they were to work their horses to death, they would have to buy others. But none of these considerations applies to workmen. If they work a man to death, they can get another for nothing at the corner of the next street. They don't have to buy him. All they have to do is to give him enough money to provide him with food and clothing, of a kind, while he is working for them. If they only make him ill, they will not have to feed him or provide him with medical care while he is laid up. He will either go without these things, or pay for them himself. At the same time, it must be admitted that the workman scores over both the horse and the slave, inasmuch as he enjoys the priceless blessing of freedom. If he does not like the hirer's conditions, he need not accept them. He can refuse to work, and he can go and starve. There are no ropes on him. He is a free man. He is the heir of all the ages. He enjoys perfect liberty. He has the right to choose freely which he will do, submit or starve, eat dirt or eat nothing. The wind blew colder and colder. The sky, which at first had shown small patches of blue through rifts in the masses of clouds, had now become uniformly grey. There was every indication of an impending fall of snow. The men perceived this with conflicting feelings. If it did commence to snow, they would not be able to continue this work, and therefore they found themselves involuntarily wishing that it would snow, or rain, or hail, or anything that would stop the work. But on the other hand, if the weather prevented them getting on with the outside, some of them would have to stand off, because the inside was practically finished. None of them wished to lose any time if they could possibly help it, because there were only ten days before Christmas. The morning slowly wore away, and the snow did not fall. The hands worked on in silence, for they were in no mood for talking, and not only that, but they were afraid that Hunter or Rushton or Crass might be watching them from behind some bush or tree, or through some of the windows. This dread possessed them to such an extent that most of them were almost afraid even to look round, 
and kept steadily on at work. None of them wished to spoil his chance of being kept on, to help to do the other house that it was reported Rushton and Co. were going to do up for Mr. Sweater. Twelve o'clock came at last, and Crass's whistle had scarcely ceased to sound before they all assembled in the kitchen, before the roaring fire. Sweater had sent in two tons of coal, and had given orders that fires were to be lit every day, in nearly every room, to make the house habitable by Christmas. "'I wonder if it's true that the firm's got another job to do for old Sweater?' remarked Harlow, as he was toasting a bloater on the end of the pointed stick. "'True? No,' said the man on the pail scornfully. "'It's all bogey. You know that empty house, as they said Sweater had bought, the one that Rushton and Nimrod was seen looking at?' "'Yes,' replied Harlow. The other men listened with evident interest. "'Well, they wasn't pricing it up after all. The landlord of that house is abroad, and there were some plants in the garden as Rushton thought he'd like, and he was telling Misery which ones he wanted. And afterwards old Punch's pilot came up with Ned Dawson and a truck. They made two or three journeys, and took bloody near everything in the garden as was worth taking. What didn't go to Rushton's place went to Hunter's. The disappointment of their hopes for another job was almost forgotten in their interest in this story. "'Who told you about it?' said Harlow. Ned Dawson himself. It's right enough what I say. Ask him. Ned Dawson, usually called Bundy's mate, had been away from the house for a few days down at the yard doing odd jobs, and had only come back to the cave that morning. On being appealed to, he corroborated Dick Wantley's statement. They be getting themselves into trouble if they ain't careful, remarked Easton. Oh, no, they won't. Rushton's too artful for that. It seems the agent is a pal of his, and they worked it between them. "'What a bloody cheek, though!' exclaimed Harlow. "'Oh, that's nothing to some of the things I've known them do before now,' said the man on the pail. "'Why, don't you remember, back in the summer, that carved oak table as Rushton pinched out of that house on Grand Parade?' "'Yes, that was a bit of all right, too, wasn't it?' cried Philpot, and several of the others laughed. "'You know that big house we did up last summer?' Number 596, Wantley continued, for the benefit of those not in the know. Well, it had been empty for a long time, and we found this here table in a cupboard under the stairs. A bloody fine table it was, too. One of them bracket tables, what you fixed to the wall, without no legs. It had a half-round marble top to it, and underneath was a carved oak figure, a mermaid, with her arms up and over her head, holding up the table top. Something splendid. The man on the pail waxed enthusiastic as he thought of it. it. Must have been worth at least five quid. Well, just as we pulled this here table out, who should come in but Rushton? And when he seen it, he tells Crass to cover it over with a sack and not to let nobody see it. And then he clears off to the shop and sends down the boy with a truck, and as it took down to his own house, and is there now, fixing the front hall. I was sent up there a couple of months ago to paint and varnish the lobby doors, and I seen it myself. There's a picture called The Day of Judgment, hanging on the wall just over it. Thunder and lightning and earthquakes and corpses getting up out of their graves, something bloody horrible. And underneath the picture is a card with a text out of the Bible. Christ is the head of this house, the unknown guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. I was working there for three or four days, and I got to know it off by art. Well, that takes the biscuit, don't it? said Philpot. "'Yes, but the best of it was,' the man on the pail proceeded. "'The best of it was, 
when old misery heard about the table he was so bloody wild because he didn't get it himself that he went upstairs and pinched one of the venetian blinds and had it took up to his own house by the boy and a few days afterwards one of the carpenters had to go and fix it up in his bedroom now wasn't it ever found out inquired easton well there was a bit of talk about it the agent wanted to know where it was but punch's pilot swore black and white as there hadn't been no blind in that room and the end of it was that the firm got the order to supply a new one. "'What I can't understand is, who did the table belong to?' said Harlow. "'It was a fixture belonging to the house,' replied Wantley. "'But I suppose the former tenants had some piece of furniture of their own that they wanted to put in the hall where this table was fixed, so they took it down and stored it away in this here cupboard. And when they left the house, I suppose they didn't trouble to put it back again.' Anyway, there was the mark on the wall where it used to be fixed, but when we did the staircase down, the place was papered over, and I suppose the landlord or the agent never give the table a thought. Anyhow, Rushton got away with it all right. A number of similar stories were related by several others concerning the doings of different employers they had worked for, but after a time the conversation reverted to the subject that was uppermost in their thoughts, the impending slaughter and the improbability of being able to obtain another job, considering the large number of men who were already out of employment. "'I can't make it out myself,' remarked Easton. "'Things seem to get worse every year. There don't seem to be half the work about that there used to be, and even what there is is messed up anyhow, as if the people who has it done can't afford to pay for it.' "'Yes,' said Harlow, "'that's true enough. Why, just look at the work that's in one of them houses on the Grand Parade.' People must have had more money to spend in those days, you know. All those massive curtain cornishes over the drawing and dining-room windows, gilded solid. Why, nowadays they'd want all the bloody house done right down through, inside and out, for the money it'd cost to gild one of them. "'It seems that nearly everybody is more or less hard up nowadays,' said Philpot. "'I'm jiggered if I can understand it, but there it is.' "'You should ask no one to explain it to you,' remarked Crass with a jeering laugh. He knows all about what's the cause of poverty, but he won't tell nobody. He's been going to tell us what it is for a long time past, but it don't seem to come off. Crass had not yet had an opportunity of producing the obscurer cutting, and he made this remark in the hope of turning the conversation into a channel that would enable him to do so. But Owen did not respond, and went on reading his newspaper. "'We ain't had no lectures at all lately, have we?' said Harlow, in an injured tone. I think it's about time Owen explained what the real cause of poverty is. I'm beginning to get anxious about it. The others laughed. End of chapter 25, part 1